Thank you for having Kelly and I again this morning. It's such a privilege to be with you at Mount Faith again. And I pray that we always have a good time together, and I know it will be so again. I just pray the Lord's blessing over this message. Um, he has put it on my heart, so it's not something I've thumb-sucked. And I just pray that we'll all really just learn from it. It's, quite a, it's more of a teaching than it is a, a preach, but we trust in the Lord to guide us. If you have your Bibles and you're good with your Bibles, please take them out because you're really going to need it. Um, but yes, if, if you ever had, you've heard that saying, what is it again? I've forgotten it now. Um, hidden in plain sight. So if something's hidden in plain sight, for example, you have your car keys, you're searching high and low for these car keys, nine out of ten times they're probably in your hand or your handbag or wherever the case may be. As well as with our cell phones, the new, the new age is really crazy. Our phones are everywhere, yet we can't find them. And many times they're in our hand and they start ringing and you're like, oh, okay, there's my phone. Thank you. And that's what happened, if you can see in the reading, thank you, Mariana, on the road to Damascus, which is not where they were going. They were going to Emmaus. I was just testing you guys. <laughs> so they were blinded. And as you'll see, Cleopas and another disciple that is not mentioned are speaking to Jesus. And this is where Scripture really comes into its own. Prophecy, shadows, types, and symbols, as we'll see in the Old and New Testament, mainly obviously Old Testament that points forward to the New, is really, really interesting because when Jesus was disclosing all these things to these people, especially Cleopas and that disciple, and then the other disciples, Jesus didn't have a New Testament with him. I hope everyone does know that. Jesus was preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament scriptures extremely well. And so you'll see in Luke 24, verse 44, just a little bit further in the chapter that Mariana read for us, Jesus said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So what you can see now is, Jesus is saying there's three divisions in the Old Testament. The books of the law is what we know from Genesis to Deuteronomy, which is known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. The prophets, which is known as the Nevim. And the writings, which is known as the Ketavim. So I hope you guys remember that because there is a test afterwards. So <laughs> we'll really just uh, put it down at the tables outside. But those together, Torah... Nevim and Ketavim equal Tanakh. You guys have heard of the Tanakh, right? The, the Jewish people have the Tanakh. It's the Old Testament. And what's really interesting is that Jesus labeled these three. So if you're here today, you're a young Christian, you're an older Christian, you're, you're, you're pretty sure that you're not going to learn anything today. I'm going to challenge you, I hope. But if you're young in the faith, just to show you the magnitude and the magnificence of the Word of God. And so, even if you're a skeptic, I hope you're a skeptic. That's going to be awesome. And if you're a critic of the Bible, I really am going to challenge you today. Because what was written long before you and I were even a thought, although we were in God's eyes but not in our own eyes, we'll see that everything ties together so beautifully. So, I have prepared a message for about an hour and a half. I'll keep it to about 50 minutes. Okay. <laughs> let's pray. Let's ask the Lord Jesus to be with us as He opens our hearts. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for Jason and for Gail and for Joy and everyone that is a part of this service. Just thank you for the way that you've brought us here safely. We pray that you open our hearts and minds to the truth that is Christ Jesus our Lord. And we just thank you for the blessings 
of your Holy Spirit abiding in the believer, the one who has come to the full knowledge of Jesus Christ. Praise you, Lord. Thank you. Be with us and protect us as we go through your word now. Amen. Right, so Luke 24, 13 to 27. That is the, the crux of the passage that we're going to go through today. But the most important thing I want us to take out of that is that these disciples were blinded. They were spiritually blinded. They did not know that Jesus was in the Old Testament. Obviously, for them to know who the Messiah would be, they would need to know in the readings to make a parallel to show that, okay, well, we should, this is how we must look out for the Messiah. And so they were on the road to Emmaus. They, they, as you saw in the readings, their countenance was a bit down. They were a bit sad. Jesus was crucified, as we know. And then the, the woman went to the tomb. And the three or the four Gospels put it together very nicely. But they went to the tomb and they saw that the tomb was empty. But the most important thing in that passage is um, where they say, We thought that he, this Jesus, the one who was from God, was going to redeem Israel. Now that's really, really important and that we understand that if they knew the Old Testament properly, they would not have thought that, firstly. They would have known that Jesus' first mission was for salvation, was for forgiveness, was for the forgiveness of sin. So they thought, obviously, under Roman bondage, under political bondage, that Jesus would come in. Remember the Palm Sunday? There were palms, there were celebrations. Jesus was going to overthrow the kingdoms, and they were going to be happily ever after. That was not the case. And so this is where Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So what we're going to do is, any of you know what a theophany or a Christophany is? Well done, I'm proud of you. A theophany or a Christophany is a manifestation of God in the Bible that is tangible to the human senses. Okay, so we're going to look at a few of those and typology. We're going to look at types in the Old Testament. Typology in Scripture is a person or a thing in the Old Testament which foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. So I hope you're as excited as I am. I can see you guys are just holding on to your seats. John 5, 46. Jesus says this. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. What did Moses write? He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis to Deuteronomy. Romans 15, verse 4. Paul writes, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And this is, I think, where the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus had it completely wrong day. They were looking for this deliverer, and Jesus wasn't that yet. His second coming, we do know that Jesus will be that. But our first point today, in our first shadow, is we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. Right to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And the first point I'm going to make is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Now you're probably thinking, thank you, Jandre, I understand Jesus is the light of the world, but where are you going to get this from in Genesis chapter 1? Genesis 1 verse 3, which is day 1 in creation, God said, let there be light. Okay, and there was light. A little bit further down, Genesis 1, 14 to 16, we see another light created. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth. Everyone following? 
And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night, light sorry, to rule the night. Now, as we can see, there's two, there's many scholars have chiseled at this and th- said, why is there two different lights? The one is the sun, the one is the moon. Then why did Moses write in Genesis 1-3? It carries on. But I have a challenge to that. Psalm 72, verse 17. Psalm 72, 17 says, In our English translations, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. The Hebrew text, the original Hebrew scriptures, have it slightly different. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be for the sun. Are you with me? The Wycliffe translation. Wycliffe, as you know, he started the first English translation, or he made the first English translation. And he, in the late 1300s, had it the same. His name be blessed into worlds. In other words, remember, Jesus has always existed. His name be blessed into worlds. His name dwell before the sun. Young's literal translation, his name is to the age before the sun is his name continued. I'm going to blow your mind even more. The Aramaic Bible in English, and his name shall be blessed to eternity, and his name is before the sun. Who is the light of the world, brothers and sisters? It's Jesus Christ. How do we know that? I know some of you are still very skeptical. That's fine. John 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So everything needs to exist if Jesus is there. Nothing can exist without Jesus. He's the light of life. And it hit me when I read that there is no life without Jesus. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. Verse 17 is amazing. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Hebrews 1 1 to 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. This is the key verse. Through whom also He created the world, or in other words, the universe. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And that is the need for you and me to have the light in our lives. We cannot be with darkness. Remember, God is holy. He cannot be associated with darkness. And so we need the light of Jesus in our lives to be able to have a relationship with the Father. He is the true light of the world. He who follows the Lord Jesus shall not walk in darkness and shall have the light of life. The second one we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at the deception of Satan Jesus in the garden and the promise. Now you're probably thinking that's interesting. Why? Where would Jesus be in the garden? Well, that's what's so beautiful about scripture. We'll have a look at that now. So leading up to Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve are created. They're made in the image of God. And so God gives them free reign over the garden. And what happens is obviously God says only one thing to them. He commands them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Obviously they rebelled. Um, they fell, which we know as the fall, and it, it caused this great rebellion. 
So as they knew, as they had that, they, they um, sort of were uncovered. They knew that they were naked. And Jesus even said to them, or God said to them, how do you know you are naked? And Genesis 3.8, it's really, really interesting. And it got me thinking. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Now, in, in 100 BC, there was a translation started that was known as the Onkelos Targum. And the Onkelos Targum was a paraphrase or translation from Hebrew into Aramaic. It was a translation that reads like this. And they heard the Memrah of the Lord God walking in the garden. The Memrah in them is the Word of God walking in the garden. How do we know and who is the Word of God? Well, John 1, 1 tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Right, and then you see the, second, the verse carries on and says, And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now the English translations mainly say presence, but that actually says they hid themselves from the face of the Lord. Now you know that the Lord Jesus did say in His ministry that no one has ever seen the Father except He who came from the Father. So they hid themselves from the face. And I submit that they hid themselves as a Christophany uh, um, shadow of Jesus Christ in the garden. Again, I have written here and I'll read it again because it is really important. Note that Jesus said... No one has seen the Father except He who is from God. He has seen the Father. So we've seen the deception. We've seen the fall. We've looked at Jesus in the garden. Now we look at the promise. So straight after rebellion, we have to notice the love that the Father has for His creation. Straight after the promise, He goes into Genesis 3.15 and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, enmity is obviously hostility, it's animosity, it's uh, antagonism, and we know that because on a daily basis we fight the spiritual darkness of what Satan wants to get us into. So, that is the first portion. The second portion is that, I don't know how many of you are doctors here, um, but it, the scripture says, in between your seed and her seed, we're looking very not surprised, but women don't have seed. Um, men have seed, women have um, eggs, and women has a womb. So how would her seed be the one that brings the virgin, or that via the virgin, sorry, brings the Messiah? And that is the promise of God there. Look at the scriptures say, the virgin will conceive and the, uh, a son that will break the power of darkness. In other words, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the seed there is the seed, the only time it's ever happened in history, as we know, is the seed of the Holy Spirit that was planted in the Virgin Mary so that Jesus Christ could be born. The fulfillment we see in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, side note, Genesis 3.15 I don't know if you noticed that. I know there's a lot of Greek scholars here today, but that is called the Proto-Evangelium. Now, the Proto-Evangelium means the first gospel. 
The first gospel was preached in Genesis 3.15, or taught at least in Genesis 3.15. Why? Because it shows the curse of mankind because of Adam's sin, and it shows God's provision for a savior from sin by taking that curse upon himself. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And remember that your seed is Satan's seed. Those that choose to rebel against God Almighty. He shall bruise your head. So that is Jesus, this ultimate triumph over Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. That's Satan that will bruise Jesus' heel. In other words, he went to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The beautiful thing about that is that Satan thought it was forever. But Jesus rose again. Amen? Amen. And that is that portion. And you just imagine you walking with Jesus now on the road to Emmaus. And he's busy telling you all these things in scripture. He's busy disclosing these things to you. And showing you exactly where he was from the beginning right up until when we'll finish our message. But for them it must have been absolutely amazing. I just sit there in awe of that. Jesus is the light of the world. And that brings the gospel message. Remember the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. But in 1 Corinthians 15, if anyone here ever gets stuck, go to 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel message is laid out very nicely there. And you can go and teach someone out of 1 Corinthians 15. But the plan of redemption is set in stone now. The reconciliation plan is there. The adoption is there. And how are these things going to be done? They're going to be done by the blood of Jesus. And that for me, brothers and sisters, trumps every other worldview. There's no other worldview with a Savior where God Himself comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, even though we ourselves rebelled against him. The next shadow we're going to look at, or the next um, point, is the Lamb of God is the Good Shepherd. The Lamb of God is the Good Shepherd. So you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham gets called by God, and God says to Abraham, go to Moriah, and take your son, your only son, and go and sacrifice him on the altar there. So they're walking. Now imagine Isaac in this instance. You're looking around. You're chatting to your dad. And all of a sudden you realize, hang on a second, there's no lamb here. Where's this lamb? And, in, and he asks his dad, dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And in Genesis 22:8, Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So it unfolds. They get onto the mountain. Isaac is tied down. And as Abraham's about to bring the knife into Isaac, God says to Abraham in Genesis 22:12, "Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for I know, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." And I was looking at that. For now, I know that you fear God, and I feel that's missing in the church today, brothers and sisters, the fear of God. It's really, really missing. I haven't been a, a, a Christian for very, very long, but I do know my Lord and Savior, and I thank Him for saving me. But the fear of the God is really missing. We, we, it's not a fear where we cower into the corner, but it's a reverence. It's a respect for God. It's a love for God. It's an honor of God. And so if we go back to verse 8, we see, My son, God will provide for himself the Lamb. What was God going to provide for you and I? It was Jesus Christ. On Calvary 2,000 years ago. The second one again in verse 12. As we read through it. For I now know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son. Your only son. Who was not withheld from us again? Jesus Christ. How do we know that Jesus is the Lamb of the God? The Lamb of God. Sorry. 
John 1.29. Uh, John the Baptist is in, in the river uh, Jordan. He's baptizing and he sees Jesus walking towards him. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16 as well. For God so loved the world, you all should know this and I think you do, that he gave his only son. The same thing that Abraham is saying here, that God is saying to Abraham, I will give my son. Don't kill him. I will provide the son. And the significance here. He said, the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Lamb of God is the Good Shepherd. Thomas Kelly writes this. He says, when blood from a victim must flow, the shepherd by pity was led to stand between us and the foe and willingly died in our stead. And this is what atonement is, brothers and sisters. It's payment for sin. It's payment for the sins of the world. And it was promised 1,500 years before Jesus, 2,000 years before Jesus. And so we can know, looking at it 3,500 years later, how beautiful is that? It was already written in the scriptures that you and I may know. The next one. Are you all still with me? Psalm 22. Psalm 22. I'm going to have to go there. At least it's not a Psalm 119, but it's Psalm 22. Bible jokes. Don't you love Bible jokes? Okay. So, just for your info, there's 16 Messianic Psalms in the Scripture. Which means that more than 10% of the Psalms point to the Messiah. They reference to the Messiah. And in preparing for this, this verse really popped into my head from Isaiah 55, 11. It has absolutely nothing to do with Psalm 22. But it has to do with the whole of the scriptures. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. What an amazing portion of scripture. And while we're dealing with the Old Testament. To see that the word of the Lord will go out and accomplish what it has to do. If it is taught properly and in its entirety. Psalm 22. I'm only going to read from verse 1 to 8. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now already that should ring a bell. Crucifixion, Jesus is on the cross. A messianic psalm written a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. Verse, uh, sorry, still continuing in verse 1. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. That's David speaking. Now it switches back to Jesus. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. Since he delights in him. And that is very, it should also ring a bell. It's the, the other thief on the cross was saying those things about Jesus. If you are the Lord, get yourself off the cross. I even just, just re-repeating that makes me, makes me a bit it shudders in my spirit. But that's what he said. And this is so important. Because Isaiah 53 verse 5 confirms a messianic psalm. A shadow of what Jesus was going to go through and what he was going to say. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes 
we are healed. So now Jesus is confirming to these guys in, in, on the road to Emmaus, the best Bible study ever held. I still hold to that. Took him through the scriptures. And so he was showing them that he's the light of the world. That before anything was, remember Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus and his promise of what he was going to do, what God was going to do with Jesus in salvation for us. The Lamb of God is the good shepherd, brothers and sisters. And remember the crucifixion shadow. There are many shadows of this. I've just shown you one or two. Which brings us to the fifth point. The fifth point is really important because we serve a personal and relational Lord and Savior. There's no other worldview that serves a personal and relational Lord and Savior. And what a blessing it is. If you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ today, count yourself extremely blessed. Because it is only of His work on the cross that we can be redeemed. The first one we're going to look at is where we have a personal Savior. is in Genesis chapter 32. Now I know you're immediately thinking, oh, isn't that where Jacob wrestled with God? Well done, I'm proud of you. It is exactly where Jacob wrestled with God. So I'm going to read it. And he, this is being Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Right? And if you read that just in, in what you understand, it's just a normal man wrestling with Jacob. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This is now Jacob wrestling with God. I mean, this is, this is quite cheeky. You must, you must understand. But this is because he knew the God that he served. He had the relationship, and so he wanted that blessing. And it's like you and I, if we know the Lord Jesus, we would love to have his blessing every single day. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob, this is really important. Call the name of the place Penuel or Peniel. For I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Hosea also writes about this. Hosea in Hosea 12 verse 4 says, Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Now many times in scripture you'll see an angel, which is an angel obviously sent by God, maybe Michael, maybe Gabriel. There's only I think seven or eight instances that the angels are actually mentioned in scripture. But the angel of the Lord, the commander of the armies is who? Jesus Christ. Exactly. So there you see that he says, I have seen God face to face. My life is preserved. And then he crossed over Penuel. Right? The next one we're going to look at, and this is going to emphasize on the angel of the Lord, is a man by the name of Gideon. Now, as you know, Gideon is one of the judges of Israel. And Gideon, in Gideon 6, oh, sorry, Gideon 6, that doesn't exist. Judges 6, verse 11, this is where Gideon is. He opens by, by writing, or not Gideon, but it's opened by written, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his, own son, well, sorry, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Right? Just it gives you a little bit of context there. He's at the threshing floor. 
Again it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So that already should have got Gideon's head going. But Gideon said to him, O my Lord, which is Adoni, which is in relation to man. Adonai is in relation to God, which I'll show you now. But this is saying Adoni, which he doesn't realize who's sitting with him yet. And it's exactly like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us or told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. This is really important. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the land, or sorry, from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Okay? So he said to him, O oh my Lord. That is now in the scriptures, Adonai, O oh Jesus, O oh God the Father, thank you. How can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites. And that is really, really awesome. I mean, you can see that the angel of the Lord appears. He's a relational God. He's a relational Savior. And so he's showing Gideon that he will be with him. That he's the commander of the armies. And that he will be with Israel. The similar, if, if we know our Old Testament a bit more, you know, Paul in the Damascus moment, Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And so he um, is confronted by Jesus. And the amazing thing is when Paul realized, he said, immediately said, Lord, is that you? So you know when you're approached by the Lord Jesus. You know when the Lord Jesus is there. And that's just another example of why he's a relational God and why nothing else offers this. No other worldview offers relationship. The light of the world, the promise of the world, the Lamb of God, and the Savior and personal relationship of Jesus Christ. Which brings us into our last point. And this is... Jesus is evident in the feasts of Israel. Jesus is evident in the feast of Israel. And why? Because he is our blessed hope. Titus 2.13, we'll get to that. But Colossians 2.16-17 firstly says, So let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So there Paul is saying, enjoy your festivals, but remember that Christ is evident. He's visible in those festivals. So what happens is in Leviticus 23, God is speaking to Moses and he gives, God gives to Moses the seven feasts. The first one is the feast of Passover. Now you remember when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, they, after Pharaoh hardened his own heart because God gave him ten plus ample opportunities to leave his pride to leave his ego and to go to a place where he would just leave the Israelites and let them leave. The angel of death, remember the angel of death came over Israel. Each, each one had to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and paint the doorposts. Now that is a symbol of the cross. That is a symbol of the crucifixion. Jesus Christ, the unblemished, the sinless lamb, was our Passover lamb. There is much more in depth there, but we'll just touch it on the surface today. So number one is that the Passover is a shadow of the crucifixion. The second one, the second feast, is the feast of unleavened bread. Now we know what God commanded them to do is to take all leaven out of their homes for a week. And that's a, that's a symbol of Jesus taking the sin out of all our lives, out of the church's lives. 
If you choose Jesus Christ, if you confess your sin, if you repent, if you come on your knees and acknowledge that you're a sinner, your sin is removed, as we were praying earlier, as far as the east is from the west. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread represents the sinless life of Jesus Christ. Then we get to the Feast of First Fruits. Every Sunday after the Sabbath, the, the, the priest, and we're going to look at the, the Passover that weekend, the priest would bring a sheath to the temple and he would present that sheath, that first fruit, to God Almighty. And who was the first fruit? Who was the first one to resurrect from the dead ever? Jesus Christ. On the Sunday, Jesus rose again and he was the first fruit of the resurrection. So you can see the parallels of the first fruits. He's the one that resurrected from the dead and Jesus fulfills it on that exact Sunday too when he was resurrected. That's number three. Number four is the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks is really amazing because remember when the Israelites went out of Egypt? 50 days later, uh, God gave them the law. And Moses was on Mount Sinai. He was there for quite a while, as you know. And as he came down, he saw that Israel had made a golden calf. Aaron, his own brother, got all their gold together and they made this golden calf. He dropped the tablets and 3,000 people lost their lives that day. 50 days after Jesus' resurrection is what we know as Pentecost. And that was when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened. And what happened there is that the law was firstly written on stone tablets. But secondly, the law was now written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit had now come to live among believers. The same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. Peter preached a sermon. How many people were saved? 3,000 people were saved. A beautiful shadow of what had happened in the Old Testament. Four spring festivals have been fulfilled. Four spring festivals have been fulfilled and three are to be fulfilled. The next one is the Feast of Trumpets. Now the Feast of Trumpets was just known as a day of rest for Israel. And it was the first day of the seventh month. Not of the Gregorian calendar. It was of the Hebrew calendar. Anyway, Moses was instructed to make trumpets. He made two silver trumpets. And many scholars agree that one was for the church and one was for Israel. And we are living in the days of the Feast of the Trumpets. And remember the scripture says when the last trump will be blown, there will be the gathering of the church unto him. In other words, the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That is what these trumpets are for. 1 Thessalonians 4:16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And to relate it back to the Old Testament, there were four main reasons why the trumpets were blown. Number one was to assemble the whole congregation together. What is Jesus going to do with the church? He's going to assemble the church together. It's the setting out of a new destination. So they would blow the trumpet and they would say to Israel, go west, go east, whichever way they were instructed to go. What is our new destination as believers in Jesus Christ? We go to heaven. The rapture of the church signals an assembly of God assembly of Jesus with his bride to a new destination which is in heaven the third reason is that at the times of rejoicing at the appointed feasts and festivals what feast is going to be in heaven it's the marriage supper of the lamb the marriage supper of the lamb where we will be with Jesus Christ forever and the last one is when the battle 
or war was about to begin. And that is probably a symbol of the start of the tribulation period, the great tribulation. Number six is the Day of Atonement. And this was the most holy day as we know for Israel. They would take two goats. The one was a scapegoat. They would sacrifice the one goat. They would place all the sin of Israel on the other goat and send it into the wilderness. That symbolizes and is a, is a foreshadow of the second coming of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, Zechariah 12.10 tells us, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Remember the crucifixion? They will look on me whom they pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So they will realize that the true day of atonement happened on the cross when Jesus Christ gave his life. The last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. That'll be when we, we, the seven-year tribulation period is finished and we come back with Jesus to reign for a literal 1,000 years. Now, I really get confused with biblical scholars here because we're willing to take all the literal, translate, uh, literal interpretations of the Old Testament and apply it to Jesus' first coming. But when it comes to the second coming, it's almost like when uh, Shane Warne used to bowl to Alan Donald. His knees just used to shake. Do you remember that? For those cricket fans. It's the same thing. Our knees just begin to shake. But a literal face value interpretation of the scriptures tells us that it's a literal 1,000 year millennial reign. And Jesus Christ will reign, reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And why is it called the Feast of Tabernacles? Because it will be our most happy to, happiest time for all people to tabernacle with Jesus Christ, to enjoy life with Jesus Christ. And why does that point to the blessed hope? Titus 2 verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, right? Teaching us that denying ungodliness, which we should do as a Christian, and worldly lust, which we have to fight and get away from and trust in the Holy Spirit, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, Verse 13, one of the most amazing scriptures, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Miss H.K. Burlingham, who was a late 1800s poet and hymnist, says, O worldly pomp and glory, your charms are spread in vain. I've heard a sweeter story, I've found a truer gain. Where Christ the place prepareth, there is my loved abode. There shall I gaze on Jesus, there shall I dwell with God. Now you can imagine the guys on the road to Emmaus were absolutely blown away by what Jesus was disclosing to them. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg today and what we really can go through. Jesus was revealing himself throughout the scriptures. If they were to know that Jesus was coming, like David, uh, sorry, like Daniel prophesied, to the day that Jesus would come in riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, they would have known that he was the Messiah. And that is the role of the Word of God for you and I today. We need to know exactly the substance of the Word, what it contains, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible. We've all been going through different things on the Word lately with a lot of different topics. Brothers and sisters, stick to the Word. The Word of God is His revelation to us. It shows us who He is. And this is the power 
of the Word of God. Remember, the Word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it cuts to bone and marrow. It discerns the intentions of the heart. The key thing is to know Jesus. And the question today is, do you really know Jesus? Do you know Jesus Christ, and as Paul always used to write, and Him crucified? Do you know Him seated at the right hand of the Father? He is the light of the world, as we saw. He is the hope of the world. His word gives us guidance. It gives us hope. It gives us character. It gives us all these things. So that we can be joyous. We can be transformed by Him. And as Romans 15.4 says again, I read it earlier. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Till thou shalt come to take me home, be this my one ambition, Lord. Self send the will to overcome, fast clinging to thy faithful word. More of thyself each day to know, and more into thine image grow. O what is all that earth can give, I am called to share in God's own joy. Dead to the world, in thee I live, I thee I've blessed without alloy. In thee I've blessed without alloy. Well, may I earthly joys resign, all things are mine, and I am thine. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we just thank you for bringing us through this message, Lord. I pray that the seeds that have been planted will take fruit and bear fruit, Lord. There's a lot to consider. We do know that there's a lot in your scriptures, but Lord, give us that comfort and that patience to persevere in your word, to understand your word, and to bring it to other people that too need to know the gospel. Lord, if we know the Old Testament, if we know the New Testament, we can evangelize to anybody. Lord, thank you that you were present from the beginning. Before the sun was there, you were there, Lord. And only because of you, we have life. Thank you for creating each and every one of us. And I pray that if we do not know you today, Lord Jesus Christ, that we first of all admit that we are sinners. We admit that we need a Savior. There is no one righteous, no, not one, as the Scriptures say. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if we believe in the gospel message, if we believe in the blessed hope of Jesus Christ, you are, you are faithful, you are just, you forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Father, we today confess that you are our Savior. I pray that if anyone does not know you, that they come to one of us afterwards and asks us to explain these things because it's really, really important, Lord. When that last trumpet sounds, which could be after this message, are we ready? I pray that we are. Bless us, keep us, and guide us today, Lord. In Jesus' powerful name, I thank you. Amen.